Kent Heitholt was murdered in the early morning hours of November 1st, 2001, in the parking lot of the Columbia Daily Tribune. Police struggled to find any leads in this case whatsoever until two years later when 19-year-old Chuck Erickson confessed based on some dreams that he had. He also implicated his friend, Ryan Ferguson, who went on to be convicted of murder based solely on the testimony of Chuck. Welcome to Fact and Suspicion. I'm your host, Dan, here with my co-host, Ben. Hello. And if you get mad about false convictions, you you might want to grab a drink for this episode. Yeah. Because uh, you may already be familiar with the... The case of Ryan Ferguson, but this is one that will make you furious. I it's been ages since I've actually looked at this case, but I remember it being just infuriating. Oh, it was complete prosecutorial prosecutorial overreach. Oh my god! Like basically spoon feeding someone a false confession. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. But we'll get into all that in a minute. Um, let's let's talk about uh, the people involved in this first. Ryan Ferguson, um, at the time of the murder, was 17 years old. He was a, a good kid by most accounts. He was heavily involved in athletics. Um, he may have done uh, some partying and drinking underage, but that's who hasn't. That's nothing out of the norm for high schoolers, right? Uh, now he, I, I hate to call Chuck Erickson his friend. They were more like acquaintances. Um, they they knew each other from school, but they didn't really hang out a lot. Not really in the same social circles. Uh, no, no. And uh, now they were both seventeen. And uh, Chuck was known to, well, for one, he had a lot of problems with alcohol and drugs. And Chuck was just known to get black out drunk quite often. He would black out, not remember anything he did, and cause a lot of you know trouble for people while he was blacked out. Now, there's a reliable source. Yeah, and I'm not saying that he did anything violent. I don't have reports of him doing anything violent, but definitely getting on people's nerves and doing things you shouldn't do when you're drunk. And he didn't remember any of it. Um, and and because of that, Chuck didn't have a whole lot of friends. I'm not saying he didn't have friends, but he didn't have a lot of friends, and I don't know if the ones he had were close. And then you had uh, Kent Heitholt, who was the man murdered. Um, this happened in 2001. He was an editor at the Columbia Daily Tribune, a sports editor. And he was, you know, well-known and liked in the community. Um, so when he was murdered, there was quite a bit of attention toward that. And there's a lot of pressure on the police to find his murderer. And they just, they could not find anything. They couldn't get leads. They had a lot of trouble with it. Well, it seemed it. like a pretty random crime, didn't it? It was. It was It was really strange. Um, and those they, are always the most difficult to They solve. didn't know, you know, it happened at two in the morning outside of his job. They didn't know even a motive, really. Right. So it, it was it was it was a difficult crime. And the thing is, um, from what I understand, there were security cameras, but they weren't working oh, that's in the parking lot. So, yeah, just a terrible luck on that. But, you know, two years go by and they can't do anything with this case. They they have no clue what happened. And the newspapers start running um, articles about the case because it's, it's around the two year anniversary. Really critical of the police. Not necessarily so much critical of police. They may have been. I don't know. But the what we're getting to with these articles here is the fact that Chuck Erickson reads some of these articles. Oh. And he knew he was blackout drunk that night, had no memory of what happened. And he sees um, a composite drawing uh, of, you know, who the, the 
possible perpetrators. And he thinks he looks kind of like one of them, and it starts to scare him that he didn't know what he did that night. He looks kind of like this person. He's worried maybe I murdered this person. And he starts having dreams about it that bother him a lot. So he, he talks to some of his friends about it. says, I don't know what happened. I'm worried that I may have been involved in this. And one of those friends calls Crime Stoppers. I mean, can you blame them? No, I don't blame them. Especially when you've got someone that can be as erratic as, as Chuck was. And they call Crime Stoppers. Chuck gets picked up. And the police interrogate him. And he's honest with me. He said, I really don't have any memories of this night, but I'm worried I may have committed these crimes. I, I just don't know. And the police coerce a confession out of him. It was, albeit a bit easier to coerce this confession than I think a lot of the coerced confessions we've seen. If I remember correctly, he was, he was very happy to give this confession, wasn't he? he? I hate to say he was happy. I think he was scared. I mean, how did they not identify immediately that this kid was severely mentally ill? Well, I would not say, okay, I'm not going to necessarily say he was mentally ill. Um, it was just, like today, I don't think he has mental illness today. I think this was an effect of how many drugs he was doing at the time. And he was, even when he wasn't high, he was still in this adult state where he just didn't think clearly. Because when you're you're in that bad of shape with drugs, it takes being off of them for a while to really get your mind back into the correct state. And this man was used to being completely blacked out a few times a week, at least. He he was not in a proper mental state. In what world is he a credible witness, though? No world. Absolutely none. Well, clearly some jury found it. Well, we'll get into that. We'll get into the trial. Uh, the, the, the prosecutor coached him to the point that he was an amazing witness, actually. Oh. But let's get into the police interrogation of him. I remember a part in the trial where he... Like, doesn't he tell Ryan to just admit it at some point? Stop lying or something like that? Yeah, that may have been in the trial. I know he said, I know, I remember one of his quotes from the trial was, I did this. We did this. You know, pointing at Ryan. So, yeah, I think he said that to Ryan, but I don't know if it was in the trial. Okay. Now, again, let's get back into this interrogation, right? Um, At one point, Ryan actually tells the police, I, I don't know if I actually did this. I don't have any memories of it. I might just be fabricating all this on the spot. And he thinks he's getting some memories of the night, but. I mean, it's really easy to fabricate memories like it that. It is, especially when you're so nervous and having dreams about them, right? And the the cops are asking him questions about specifics of it, as they do, because they have held back details to verify that if someone confesses, this is a real confession. I mean, it's, it's a good way to weed out. People who mm-hmm. are giving false confessions. And the the most egregious part of this entire interview is when the police ask him what they strangled Heitholt with. Because at first, Chuck says, a T-shirt. I said, no, it wasn't a T-shirt. Oh. He said, well, it might have been a bungee cord that Ryan had in the back of his car. No, it wasn't a bungee cord. Were they playing Pictionary? Sounds like it, right? Then he said, well, I don't think he would have had a rope in the back of his car. And they're like, wasn't a rope. And he's just like, he's... he's, he's and they just let him keep guessing. He's just getting at the, at the end of his wits. And the cop literally sits back in his chair and he says, I happen to know for a fact that Heitholt was strangled with his own belt. Told him what the murder weapon was. Oh, dear God. And then he's like, could, could you see Ryan holding that belt, maybe? He's like, 
Maybe, yeah. So they just spoon-fed him the entire confession. Does that man lose his job at some point in this story? I can't find any reports of him losing his job, but forget losing his job. He should be in jail. Yeah. yeah you're you can't right. do that. That is... Well, firstly... Why do you think you withheld that evidence to start well, it's with? It's just, it's bad investigative practice. You withhold the evidence so you can verify someone's story. Telling them what happened is, you almost have to be trying yeah. to get them to. And if you guys want to watch some of the clips of the interview, maybe we can put in a couple of the more egregious more ones. More egregious ones. Well, you should know that five minutes into this interview, they should have known he knew nothing about this crime. And a little bit of looking into it, they would have realized that when someone actually blacks out being drunk, they don't recover memories from that. Right. They never make the memories. Yeah. So there's there's nothing, there's no basis for any kind of fact here. This is all just speculation and the police coming up with their own story. Now, obviously, he's implicating Ryan in this, so Ryan is picked up and arrested as well. And when they're interviewing Ryan, he this interview goes completely differently. He is constantly saying, I had nothing to do with this. I wasn't there. I don't think Chuck was there. I, I don't know anything about this did murder. Did Ryan even remember the particular night in question? Yeah, because it was Halloween night. Oh, okay. okay. And, and, you know, he didn't really hang out with Chuck that often. That's probably the only night he was ever hanging out with Chuck. So it's uh, it's, it's sort of memorable in that aspect, right? Okay. Now, Ryan said, I had nothing to do with this. I wasn't there. And the cops just badger and badger and badger him, and he never gives them anything. He says, I, I wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why you think I did this. If Chuck says he did it, maybe he did it, but I wasn't there. But, again, they don't care. They don't care what Ryan says. He gets arrested for this. And the craziest thing, and this really has, we talk about the cops and the prosecutors doing terrible things in this particular story, but the judge that set his bail did something horrendous to Ryan. What was that? They set his bail at $20 million. Holy shit. I don't know about now, but at the time, that was the highest bail ever set for an individual in the United States who had only been accused of one count of murder. I mean, that is ludicrously high. Insanely high. Insanely high. And obviously, this guy's not a threat, right? You know, right. He's, he's a kid. He's, he's, at this point, he's 19 years old. Why you think he's such a threat? I, I don't know if the judge was just being mean to him or if, if he didn't want him to get out so that he could try to, you know, investigate the matter on his own, figure well, what happened. Clearly the judge thought he was a danger to the public or he wouldn't have said it that high. I don't see how he's a danger to the public. At any rate, because he may have gotten drunk one night and committed a murder, he's a danger to the public. I mean, that is dangerous. Don't get me wrong, but he didn't do it. There's no evidence against it other than the fact that the cops made up a story and gave it to Chuck. Right. At any rate, that that's where the story starts out. It's 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 pretty pretty bad. Now, um, that night, what happened is Halloween night, two thousand one. Um, Ryan uh, met up with Chuck at a party, and you know they were talking a little bit. And he said, "Hey, let's let's go to a bar and get something to drink." Now, mind you, they're only seventeen here, and they go to a bar called By George. And uh, this is in Columbia, Missouri, by the way. Okay. And they get in. They're able to get in underage. Um, from what I understand, Ryan's sister was there and was able to get them in. And they spent all their money drinking. Okay. And according to Ryan, about one fifteen or so, they leave. He takes Chuck home, and then he goes home. Now, according to Chuck, when they leave, well, this is the story that the police sort of planted in Chuck, right? 
uh, th- they wanted to go do some more drinking. Okay. And uh, they didn't have any money. So they decided to go out and rob someone for some money to go drinking. It seems like a normal thing to do. And they drive by and Kent Heidholt is out in the parking lot leaving work. And they decide to kill him for his money. Uh, now, the big problem with this is there's absolutely no evidence that Heidholt was robbed in any way. They found his wallet and nothing appeared to be missing. Wait, he still had cash in it? Yeah. So his story was that they did it for drinking money mm-hmm. and they left the cash in the wallet. Yeah, probably never even touched the wallet, honestly. So also... I mean, he was just like a little puppet that the police could make say yeah, anything. Yeah, pretty he? much, yeah. Now, I don't think they planted that in him. They just were looking for some kind of motive. And he said, well, we're looking for drinking money because they did run out of money that night, right? Uh, now, a couple things with this. One, he wasn't robbed. Two, Kent Heitholt was six foot five and 300 pounds. I don't think you're going to just drive by and pick that guy to mug. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, that's a big dude. I, I don't know. I, 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 you probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't mug anyone anyway, right. but I, I just don't think I'd want to be like, eh, let's let's go attack this guy. Yeah. Kill him. Yeah, that's Why a fair would point. you pick that guy? Um, and beyond that, and this is something that doesn't really come out until later, uh, after the first trial, but by Missouri state law, all the bars have to close at 1.30 a.m. Okay. And according to Chuck's story, after they steal the money, they go back to the bar and drink some more. After it would have already been closed? Yeah, they would have closed at 1.30, and Heitholt wasn't killed until around at least 2.20. How did they square that circle? They just didn't bring it up. Oh, okay. Yeah. They, they didn't have Sounds to. Sounds about right. Apparently. I, and we'll get into this, but the, the defense attorney was god-awful in this first case. Would have to be. So bad. So bad. Should have, should have never gone to trial. But I mean, in the family's defense, they probably thought this case would be so easy to win that it didn't really matter who they hired. Well, they actually paid a lot of money for an attorney. Oh. Very prestigious attorney from a prestigious firm in Kansas City. How do you fuck this one up that bad? Well, we'll get into it. He okay. fucked it up pretty bad. Now, Kent Heitholt had a co-worker that apparently saw him just before he was murdered. A man named Michael Boyd that also worked at the Tribune had left work uh, apparently just a little before Kent, and he was sitting outside in his car, according to him, listening to, listening to some music. And he saw Kent walk out, and he said he pulled his car over next to Kent's, and they had a conversation. And he thinks this conversation took place somewhere between 2.12 and 2.20. So this would have been like immediately before the murder. Immediately before the murder, right. And I guess they looked at that guy, right? Actually, not really that closely. I, I, I mean, look, I, I'm not in any way saying this guy was involved. No, I, I don't no. know who this guy is. And, and there, there's some I'm reasons. I'm just saying that because he, he was obviously the last person right. to see him. There's some reasons. I know he was questioned, but it does not seem he was investigated very strongly. Um, now, he says that he left and Heitholt was still there. Now, uh, the last sighting here, I, I can't say. Kent. He was the last one saw Kent, but um, Shauna Ornt, who was a janitor at the Tribune, mm-hmm. walked outside and saw two people near Heitholt's car. And that's around two twenty six, and she said there were two white males, approximately college age. That couldn't have helped them at trial. No. And she goes back inside and gets her supervisor named Jerry Trump. And he comes out and they both see these men there. And they say that one of them yelled and said, hey, somebody's hurt over here. And they leave. 
and they walk away. So they go over and they find Kent's body. He's dead. Now, I would say that one of the reasons that um, that Boyd was not looked at very strongly is because he's not two college-age white men. He's right, one black right. male. Yeah, I mean, right? that makes sense. So, I, I, and I'm not saying he had anything to do with it, but I do think they should have investigated him a little a little more efficiently with this. Um, from what I understand, he just he wasn't really looked at that yeah, strongly. But that, that last eyewitness account, though, that's, that's, that does seem to rule that out. That is. It, it does seem to. So I'm not trying to call Michael Boyd into question. I do think maybe the police should have done a little bit more of their due diligence. Well, that seems to be the case all the way around here. Well, that's the case. A lot of these, these things we talk about here. So you've got some witnesses, but no real witness to who's seen the murder. No one's seen the murder. They've seen two people around the body. Okay. And these two guys, I mean, they are 17, but they think they, they do sort of fit the description. They're, they, they're two white males. They could appear to be college age. It's right? general. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, they they charge them. You know, they, uh, they take it to trial. Now, um, Chuck Erickson makes a plea deal because he's testifying against Ryan Ferguson. They only charge Chuck with second-degree murder, and they charge Ryan with first-degree murder, and as well, they charge him for the robbery of Kent Heidholt, even though there's no evidence that Kent has been In robbed. Chuck's uh, recollection, was Ryan the one to actually commit the murder? Yes, and, oh. and it was Ryan's idea as well. Convenient. Yeah, it usually is. Yeah. Um, now, as I said... I mean, this, to be fair, if you're going to invent a memory, why invent one where you're the murderer? Well, obviously, I wouldn't invent one where I'm the, right. I'm the bad guy, or not as bad, anyway. Next time I fabricate a crime, I know. right? Well, they they go on to trial, and you know, if if you see any of these videos of uh, Chuck Erickson being interviewed, he has no idea about any of the stuff. He's clueless about the crime in the interviews. But when they go to trial, the prosecutor Kevin Crane has coached and coached Chuck. This man is a perfect witness. He gives in depth descriptions of. Everything things How they he couldn't recall earlier, things he, he still can't recall, but he claims to be able to. You know, how did a good defense attorney not pick this apart? Did they not know about this stuff yet? That he'd been he fed this? He knew. Let's let's get into to what happened with this now. <clears throat> how do you not make a jury understand that? That yeah, he he may sound great now, but he had no clue what happened. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, their best piece of evidence for that were the tapes of the interrogation yeah. of Erickson. And apparently they didn't do a check of their AV equipment beforehand mm-hmm. because when they pull it out there, it's, it's not even as good as those uh, TVs. We used to watch videos on in high school. Oh dear God. Like the jury can't see it. They can't hear it. So it really does no good for them. And this is, this is really it's convenient exculpatory evidence they've got here and you know, nothing, nothing. And it really, it made me think a lot. This case makes me think a lot about the Michael Peterson, Kathleen Peterson case, Mm -hmm. because if you watch that documentary about the staircase, um, Peterson's attorney, um, David, what was his name? I can't think of his name right now, but his AV guy is in there with him one night and they're going over a slideshow and it's not in the right order. Well, the attorney chews him up one side and down the other because everything has to be perfect, perfect in order, yeah. when you go into the courtroom. And then this guy doesn't even look into anything. It's just, eh, whatever. 
Yeah, it's his, ridiculous. his name is Charles Rogers, and apparently he's a well-known attorney. They paid yeah. a lot of money for him. Do but. we know if the quality of this video and audio was generally that way, or did they just get really lucky in this case? Well, I, you know, I really don't know, but that seems to be more, you know, on the burden for the defense to make sure they've got something they can play that on, right? But if it was recorded poorly to begin well, with, wasn't the what poor they... recording because we can so watch it on def- YouTube. The defense screwed this up. Then. Oh yeah, definitely. It's the it's the VCR and oh, the TV God. there, and they're showing it on, or you know, you know whatever. The, hold on. Then why did they not ask for a recess and fix it? Well, I have no idea, but this guy just, you know, Mr. Rogers didn't seem like he was interested in all that. There's actually one point in the trial, they have a um, a, a big like, like um, sky kind of picture of the layout of the this area of the city. Mm-hmm. And he's got different places um, labeled as, as places of interest. For instance, the bar they were at, uh, the Tribune, stuff like that. Well, they were all labeled in the wrong place. And oh, the prosecutor God. has to come up and correct him. That's not where that is. That's this is over here. This is over here. So they just looked utterly incompetent to the jury. Very completely incompetent. It turns out uh uh Mr. Rogers didn't even walk the crime scene one time. Excuse me? No, never never went out to the crime scene to check it out. The defense attorney the defense never attorney. looked at the crime scene. Never, never looked at the crime scene. What the hell did he do? I don't know. Honestly, he, he did a bad job. He also apparently did not interview any of the witnesses because let's get into this. Now, as we said, Jerry Trump, he uh, was the the supervisor, janitor supervisor mm-hmm. that Shauna Orange had to come outside with him. Right. Okay. Now, Trump, uh, in his initial interview with police, said he couldn't identify the two people. He didn't get a good enough look at them. However, in trial, he comes up and testifies that he uh, he saw their picture in the paper uh, when they were arrested, and it jogged his memory. He realized these are the two guys that he saw there. He testifies to that. That's convenient. It is. <clears throat> Another thing we should note about Mr. Jerry Trump is that he is a convicted sex offender. Now, I've been trying to verify exactly what his offense was. I've heard people say he was a child molester. I don't know that for sure. I couldn't find him on the sex. That's why you found registry. sex registries earlier. Huh? Yeah, I couldn't find him on the sex offender registry. I was trying to find him just to verify. And I couldn't find him, so I don't know exactly what he did. But that's got to kill some credibility, right? You would hope so. You would hope did so. the defense even bring it up though? It was brought up, yeah, but it didn't seem to really make any difference. And also, we do have Shauna Ort called to the stand. Now she's called by the prosecutor Kevin Crane. And Crane asks her, did you do this composite sketch? She says, yes, I, I did that. He's like, did you see the 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 two people that night? And is this the sketch you came up with? Yes. He does not ask, are they in this courtroom? Like he asked Jerry Trump. He, we won't ask her that. He doesn't ask her. So obviously she doesn't think these are the two guys. Right. Or right. I mean, he'd have asked if she, if she right. got that. Well, Charles Rogers get up there, gets up there and won't ask either. Wait. The, the hell? If he had interviewed her beforehand, he would have known she would have said, that's not them. But he didn't know what she was going to say, so he was afraid to ask her. So we know for sure that she didn't think it was them? Oh, we know because she testified later to that. And the prosecutor knew that? Prosecutor knew it. How did the defense miss that? Well, obviously, the prosecutors, they seem to have withheld that little bit of information that she didn't know that. They withheld few things in this. There were some Brady violations. Scumbags. And 
you know, but the defense, all he had to do was interview her. Right. The defense attorney. And he just dropped the ball on that, too. Well, then that's not a Brady violation, then. Well, that's, maybe not, but if they, they should have disclosed. ineffective assistance of counsel, probably. Mm-hmm. No, but if, there. if the prosecutors knew that she did not think they were the, they were, she did not think they were the perpetrators, they should have disclosed that. I don't necessarily know that it, you have to. I think mm-hmm. you have to turn over a particular witness, but I don't think you have to tell them what they're saying. When no, but if that is, that's exculpatory I'd evidence, have to talk to a, I don't, I'd have to talk to an attorney, that, though. That, well, from, from what I've read, a lot of people think that is exculpatory evidence, so that should have been disclosed. But maybe so, maybe so. And if you if it is dis- exculpatory evidence and it's not disclosed, that is a Brady violation. Well, yeah, of course. Right. I mean, that's what a Brady violation is. Now, um, I said, or she didn't think that it was them, but um, Charlie Rogers, he never asked. So you have to understand the the picture that the jury is being painted at this point, though, right? They don't get to see these interviews uh, by the police officers with with Charles Erickson because, I mean, you know, they would have known he was just spoon fed every bit of information. I mean, if there they is had. no excuse for that. Right. And then you have someone who does who saw them there, got a better look than Jerry Trump and says, no, no, this is not them. But but they don't hear that either. I mean, the defense's strongest case <clears throat> was the fact that information that this guy claims to have now when he's telling his story mm-hmm. in court, he didn't know originally. Like that that's their slam dunk. Yes. How do you mess that up? That, well, by not I mean I mean initially obviously when you by said not that, Having the video, they can watch. Yeah, but I, th- I thought initially you were talking about like it just the recording didn't come out right. No, no, the recording because you can, we can watch them on YouTube, and you can understand it pretty well. I can't even imagine how a def- like was he trying to lose? <clears throat> you know, I've wondered that myself. It seems like he he was less prepared than most public defenders. It seems like, and this man was getting paid quite a bit for this. So, hope they recoup some of that. It'd be nice, but I, I doubt it. Yeah, I really doubt it. Um, another thing that he, he does that's pretty questionable is he lets Ryan or he has Ryan take the stand, which you just, you don't do that unless you just have to have a defendant in the murder trial take the stand. I mean, it depends. Uh, honestly, like it, I've talked to some attorneys who say it's like, it, it depends a lot on the region you're in. In some parts of the country, people just expect the person to speak for themselves. It's it's why, uh, for example, Kyle Rittenhouse was put on the stand when almost every attorney that I spoke to said that was a mistake, right? Well, it just a, a Wisconsin jury needed to hear from Kyle. Maybe that's the case in a, in a Missouri jury as well, but you would think he would have coached him fairly well beforehand. Yeah, yeah of course. And, and, and Ryan was not coached. Uh, Kevin Crane is able to... Wait, they didn't have hours of prep before? It doesn't seem so. No, no. Kevin Crane actually uh, kind of went at him and, and got a rise out of a few times, made him look kind of stupid at times. It was it was rough. It was rough on Ryan. And uh, Crane, you know, the prosecutor who obviously... I, I feel like he had to have known Ryan was innocent when he was going at him like this on the stand. But I mean, you can convince yourself of all sorts of things. I mean, I hope he's not that damned evil. No, well, he's either evil or stupid. In either case, you shouldn't be a, a prosecutor. No, of course not. Now, maybe prosecutors just shouldn't have the godlike authority we give them. No, no, and, I, and I, I've, I've been, I've been dealing with that this entire case. You know, they just they they have too much power. Now, prosecutorial yeah. discretion is absurd. You know, and you can't. Obviously, they're they're threatening. They're threatening. Chuck 
with the death penalty here, you know, and they actually tell him, you know, Ryan, he's going to flip on you if you don't do it first. There's lying to him when Ryan the whole time saying, I had nothing to do with this. Nothing. I don't know anything about it. And they told him Ryan was going to flip on him. So obviously Chuck thinks, oh, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to do this first. Right. I mean, well, why go to court when you can just terrify them into a plea deal? Right. Right. And he didn't even think he wasn't even sure he'd done this. I think honestly, he went in thinking if I did this, you know what? We'll take care of it. I'll, I'll serve my time. But if I didn't, the police can tell me I didn't do it. They'll, they'll be able to tell, you know, sure. There's some evidence, right? And you know, there was evidence. There were fingerprints on, uh, on Heidholt's car, which didn't match either one of them. Really? Yeah. There was some hair in Kent Heidholt's hand that he ripped out from somebody's head. Didn't match either one of them. You've got to be kidding. No, no, it's completely. That's a clear sign of a struggle. One would assume. He obviously fought his attacker. Yeah. Well, you would think a big, you know, six foot five, three hundred pound guy would fight someone that attacks him with what they say was a tire iron, and then was able to strangle him with his own belt. Yeah, I'd forgotten how infuriating this case is. I mean, you know, I understand somebody sneaks up on you with a tire iron; they can they can get the the drop on you. But yeah, again, cool. like I. Well, clearly he fought at least some if he had yeah. hair in his hand. And they, they strangled him. with the, the, the way he died was he was strangled with his own belt. Like, they didn't, he didn't die from being hit in the head with a tire iron. That's so weird. So, you know, it's it's not even, I mean, it's likely it wasn't even a tire iron. Nobody knows what it was, really. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, they didn't have, they never Just found a murder weapon. Blunt force trauma was the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, blunt force trauma, that wasn't the cause of death, though. But they said there was blunt force trauma. Oh, what was the cause of death? It was the strangulation. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. And, you know, they just, they never had a murder. Well, they had the belt, but they never had what he was hit with. Right? I shouldn't say they didn't have a murder. But they had the belt, but they never had the item that he was beaten with. They never found that. And they just, they didn't have a lot of evidence. There was a lot of evidence. And sadly, I Did they say car, a tire iron because that was an item that yeah, no, possessed? Yeah, it was something that would have been in the back of the car. And, I, I and you know, that's something that, you know. It's interesting it, how that tends to work, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, everybody has a tire iron in the back of their car, so it's really handy how many people probably murdered with tire irons. Yeah. You know, as far as these accusations go. But I don't know. There just there was never much evidence. And, and I wish that I had more information about it. But sadly, like it's hard to find information about the initial investigation of this because this wasn't a big national media attention case until – Ryan Ferguson right. was accused. And that's when you have this problem because really after the trial, when Ryan's found guilty, he gets sentenced to 40 years, he's 30 for the murder, another 10 for the robbery. Uh, that his dad just goes on a crusade. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and thank God too, right? Because he'd still be sitting in jail without his dad. His dad gets media attention. He gets his car wrapped with some of that like printed plastic saying, you know, set Ryan free. Ryan's innocent. I don't know exactly what it said, but something like that. Right. Um, he's investigating. He's the one that finds out about the bars being closed. Wait, they they didn't know that at trial. No, he's the one that found that out. How the hell did a defense attorney miss that? I, I don't know. I that, have no that clue. part of the prosecution story was literally impossible. Literally impossible. Literally impossible. And that he found that out. That the dad, Bill Ferguson, found that information. He also was. I remember him giving a million interviews and such. He, uh, with all of his, you know, media attention, he was able to catch the attention of Kathleen Zellner, who you all may know from Making a Murderer. 
Oh, she okay, represented yeah. Stephen Avery. All right. Uh, and she I can't did, win them all. Well, no, she did pro bono work for Ryan on this one, and um, she's able to get him a habeas corpus trial. Well, habeas corpus hearing rather. Okay, yeah. Because obviously there were certain things that were unfair about the trial. Um, one of them being that they found out Jerry Trump lied on stage. Or so on was stage. she just his appeals attorney? Yes, she was not his attorney until the of uh, the appeal. Well, really, the, the I, I don't think technically a, a habeas corpus uh, hearing is technically an appeal. I thought a habeas. Uh, I thought it was an appeal. It's well. I don't know if by definition it's the same thing as an appeal. It's it's pretty much an appeal, but okay. I think an appeal may be something slightly different. It's hard to say, but I know this was this really flexing our legal knowledge. Here. We are. I apologize. Um the the habeas corpus hearing uh has more to do with just the um the fairness of the trial, whereas an appeal could uh you know be based on new evidence or whatnot. And what what she got was for one, Jerry Trump uh recanted his testimony. Okay. Uh they find out that Trump actually lied on stand. Uh, his wife did not show him a newspaper with those two pictures in it. Um, his his wife actually told an investigator at some point, a prosecutorial investigator at some point, that she had never seen the newspaper. She didn't show him the newspaper. Yeah. Trump said he never saw that newspaper until he went into Kevin Crane's office and that Kevin Crane pressured him into identifying these two boys. Really? Right. Well, at the time Trump was going through another trial, I don't know if it was the one for the... The you know the sexual offenses, ah, uh, but so they had leverage on him, right? And Cr he said that Crane kept saying to him, "It'd be really helpful oh. if you can identify these two boys." Now, Shauna Ornt, uh, who when she was interviewed by Zellner said that you know she never thought that they were the two, and she said that Crane tried to pressure her, got really aggressive with her into identifying the two of them, and she refused to. So he's a real piece of shit. Real piece of shit. Yeah, really bad. And uh, obviously, you have the um, the information about the the bars being closed. Whatnot. That's more information. But Chuck, who doesn't go by Chuck anymore, he started going by Charles Erickson now. Um, has actually uh, he contacts Kathleen Zellner and has her come by, and he gives her a statement saying that Ryan had nothing to do with the murders. Oh, I guess a little time in prison had. Uh... Well, fix that memory issue he was having. Well, it did, but he actually like sort of fell on the sword and made the statement that he did it all alone. Really? And yeah, because he said, well, well, in interviews he said he just felt so bad that he got Ryan into this that he had to do whatever he could to get him out of trouble. And he gave that Noble? statement. Now, when when they come to the hearing though, he actually testifies that he didn't have anything to do with it, that he wasn't involved, he has no memories of it, and was simply coerced by prosecutors and threatened with a death penalty. And made to testify. But honestly, just that inconsistency helps Ryan a lot. Oh, oh, obviously. Obviously it does. And once you have... So you these, got a star witness that can't make his damn mind up. Then. And once you have these two testimonies recanted, there is zero evidence against Ryan. Yeah. There's none whatsoever. So they have to, you know, overturn the convictions and let him go. Because there's no evidence whatsoever. Um, now, he, he did. Um, that happened... In 2013. How long had he been in prison at this point? 10 years. No, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. No, no, no. That happened in 2014. I'm so sorry. He'd been in prison for 10 years. Jesus. And that's 10 years of his life he lost. Now, he does bring a civil suit against, initially, it is 11 uh, de 
11 people he brings a civil excuse me a civil suit against um that's prosecutors a good chunk of change kevin crane's one of them uh six police officers all of them that had done damage to him um uh, which you know rightly so I, I think they really did do damage yeah to him. of course now you take someone's life away you deserve to pay eventually um those charges are well, well they, they narrow it down to six defenders and it's just the police officers um Sadly, you know, Kevin Crane wasn't included in that. Oh, that's a bitch. Uh, but he is awarded $11 million. That's one... Prosecutors are basically immune to... Uh, uh, well, he, he's awarded $1 million for every year he was in prison, and then another million for legal expenses. Which, Good for him. You know... Good for him. And I would say Kathleen Zellner was well worth it, getting him out of jail. Yeah. Though, I mean, he'll never recover that time. It's not like... I mean, yeah, he deserves $10 million for that, but I think he probably deserves more than that. I mean, probably, but he's out, and now he's got more money than he knows what to do with. So at least some good came from it. Yeah, you can never get the time back. But Also, uh, I should mention that Kevin Crane, the prosecutor, the absolute terrible human being mm-hmm. that was either so stupid he believed he did it or... You know, just working toward his own ends to get a pro. Get a, he's a judge now, isn't he? He's a circuit court judge. Yeah. That's usually how that works. That happens a lot. Yeah. And there is no way this man should be a you judge. Just fuck people your way to the top. Yeah. Well, in what world can someone who covers up evidence like this be a judge and preside over cases? Obviously, he's going to slant toward the prosecution every time. Yep. I mean, that, that's, it's a sad state. I think it's like 90, I, I remember the, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was like ridiculously high. Like 90% of all judges are former prosecutors. It may even be higher than that. Uh, I would say mostly because, well, one, if you're a good defense attorney, hey, well, why you would you go be a judge? You you're making money. plenty of money. Uh, um, <clears throat> and also, you know, really prosecutors, they're already politicians. Yeah. You know, they're already you know, trying to get elected. They know how to work the system. That's that's part of it. You know, you have to be a politician to be a judge. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to say all prosecutors are slimy, terrible people. They're, they're not. They, they all have too much authority. They have too much authority. But not all of them are assholes. No, but if, if they could wield the authority correctly, I don't think it would be as big of an issue. This dude is like fucking out of Phoenix Ride or something. Dude. <laughs> like, what a clown. Oh, do you think he'd be a boss? Probably. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was rough. Um, something else we should mention here, though, is that Charles Erickson is still in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Um, they, they let Ryan go, but Charles, I mean, it's still awful. he's still in there. Don't get me wrong. It's awful that he's there and he didn't do it. But better him than Ryan. I mean, you know, that's that's very true. I mean, it, 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 you know, he was the one that confessed to this and his sentence wasn't as long. But we still have to remember this guy was coerced. You know, this this man, he he wasn't in, a, a, you know a good state of mind. Mm-hmm. He was very vulnerable and the police really took advantage of that. And they just coerced a confession out of him. And this man should have gone to jail for I mean, that. This is another case where if the state wanted to, they could just do the right thing and let him go. No, but but that's not, that. not going to happen. No. I mean, at least, you know, at least Ryan didn't end up having to do an Alfred plea. Right. Right. I can't believe that, honestly. But when there's absolutely no evidence, you can't make an Alfred plea, right? Because you have to admit there's some evidence. I mean, they did it to the West Memphis Three. That's true. I mean, what evidence was there against them? 
circumstantial evidence. I mean, hell, maybe. usually the, they, the Alfred plea mainly <laughs> exists in these cases just to prevent them from suing. Yeah. I, I hate to even say with the West Memphis 3, it was circumstantial evidence. It really it was just, it was, it was a lot of bias with yeah. that. Uh, but with this one, there's just nothing, nothing whatsoever. And a lot of people have, have, um, have compared the settlement he got as sort of a, a reverse Alfred plea. Because, you know, they, they issued him that, you know, without really even going to trial. You know, they issued him that, and he took it, you know, and now he can't sue for more. Right, right. Yeah. So it's like a reverse enough. Alfred plea, um, which it works the same way. Right, you know? and you get it quicker. <laughs> I mean, if you're in his situation, especially as much money as his parents had already spent, I'm sure they yeah. were in debt. Yeah, I, like, I know. They needed the $10 money. $10 million now. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's in a lot better place now. He... um. He was hosting a show on MTV, uh, actually, you know, working to get um, falsely accused people, getting their convictions overturned. Good for him. Um, he went on uh, The Amazing Race with a friend of his. Yeah. Now he's, he's had a lot. He's he's almost like a celebrity now. He seems to really have recovered from that time in prison pretty well. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad for Ryan Ferguson. Yeah. I'm glad he was able to, to, to get past that. Because some people, after 10 years in prison, they just, you know, they're never the same. They're never the same. And maybe the the time that you know Charles Erickson has spent in prison has actually helped him because he's at least been able to get clean. That's and true. He's he's more in it. Well, you know, we assume. Well, no, it, it seems to me because he's he's a completely you know you watch interviews of him now he's a completely different person. Oh, okay. Um, I just didn't. You, you you can't just assume that because they're in prison and like, no, no, don't no, have no, access. No. I, to I it, didn't right? mean that. I just mean you know from from what you can you can see in interviews and stuff. He was he was much different. I mean honestly, he's he's not a stupid person. A lot of people think he's just so dumb because he. He uh, was coerced into this confession. Uh, th- there's a lot of difference in being, you know, mentally handicapped and having, you know, so many drug problems that you can't think straight. Right. Uh, and that's the, the latter was definitely what was going on with with Erickson. He um, actually, and you could tell when he when he was a witness in the trial against Ryan, that he was actually pretty sharp. You know, he was a great witness. He was able to describe things very well. He he's able to banner with a defense attorney, though. With that defense attorney, I don't know. I mean, a five-year-old probably could have gone out there and outsmarted him. I don't know. That's just embarrassing. It really is. I I hate to think of how much money they spent on that guy. I don't know. I don't know, but by all accounts, he was expensive. So, yeah, they got screwed over on that. He probably should have taken a public defender. I hate to say I've never said someone should take a public defender. Is there any way it could have been worse? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean. Let's say he. For some somehow he basically forfeited his best argument, which was that Chuck didn't have this information before the police fed it to him. So the the tape and the and the audio, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't figure out that one of the witnesses didn't think that it was his client, and he didn't know that the bars weren't open. That, that part of their case was literally impossible. Yeah, yeah, he he. he. He should have figured that stuff out. I don't know how you could get any worse. And not just that, like when he has the diagram up there that's labeled the wrong way and the prosecutor has to go up there and correct it. I mean, you you lose the the jury loses all faith in this man at that point. What what are they going to do? It was it was a you know, it was it was just a joke. It was a circus out there. And you honestly, you can't blame the jury in that point for thinking he was guilty. No. You know, I mean, it's there. No, the defense attorney that incompetent. No, it was terrible. Like you. A lot of times you think, well, the juries are so biased these days. But in this case, I don't think they were. 
I don't think the defense was able to, to create any reasonable doubt. Now, the prosecution really didn't prove anything. Either, which, is a, but, which is ludicrous, considering how much reasonable doubt there is in this case. So much. So much. Like, reasonable doubt, like, I, I wouldn't even call it reasonable doubt. I would call it just reasonably knowing that he didn't do this. Like, it's, like the fact mm-hmm. that this case ever even went to trial with the evidence they had well, is ludicrous. You know, if, if he had had a defense attorney that was decent, I don't think it would have ever gone to trial. You're probably right, yeah. Uh, this guy, he he apparently didn't even prep for the case. Maybe he read over the file the night before. If he had found, if he had discovered these things that he should have found during his investigation, it probably wouldn't have gone to trial. Uh, I would hope not. But at any rate, it's as I said. You know, we I feel like Kevin Crane had to have known that Ryan was innocent. And I hope you're wrong. Sort of railroaded but God, him into you that. Might be right. But with the kind of defense that Ryan had. I mean... Well, to the extent that he had one. It's hard to blame it all on the prosecutor at this point. Oh, God, no. It's just embarrassing. While it is necessary for prosecutors to have some degree of power in this country, this is a prime example of them wielding it in the wrong ways. How can we solve the problem of getting dangerous criminals off the street without making it so easy to convict the innocent. At some point, the burden of proof left the prosecutors and fell upon the shoulders of the defense. And that is not how our legal system was designed to work. Ryan Ferguson lost 10 years of his life, and while he has been compensated monetarily, he will never recover that time. Charles Erickson is still in jail for a crime he did not commit. And Kent Heitholds murderer is still at large. I may not have all the answers, but I do know that this system has to change. We'd like to thank you for listening to Fact and Suspicion. If you'd enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could like and subscribe and maybe tell someone else about the show. If you have any feedback for us or if you have an episode that you'd like for us to cover, we'd like for you to contact us through email at factandsuspicion at gmail.com or on Twitter at andsuspicion.